AFIDS is proud to acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people as traditional custodians of the land on which we're having this conversation. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. AFIDS, listen. Hello, this is Mish. I'm Anna. Hey, I'm Lara. And AFIDS Listens is an alternative archive where artists share a work that they've made and a work that they love. So Lara, welcome back to NAM. Thanks so much, Anna. I, yes, was in Launceston for a week and had a pretty amazing time with 12 regional artists and three art provocateurs, which um, is a fancy word for facilitator. And together we were in an artist lab, just provoking and chatting. Um, yeah, it was a really nice uh, shift of, of pace and to be able to kind of meet so many artists that I'd never sort of met before. Let's take it back a step. What does provoking mean? <laughs> Great question. Um, I guess I provoked their ideas and their practices. Um, it was a huge range of artists across different art forms from Western Australia and Castlemaine and Cairns. And um, really we talked a lot about socially engaged practice and uh, we really talked about how to sort of center the audience, the place, the context or the participant or collaboration right at the heart of the artwork. And that's my jam, that's Aphid's jam. So um, I, had a, I had a really nice time. You guys been to Launceston before? I have, and I'd love to go into the lab, but my, my first question is, <laughs> did you go and see the monkeys in the park? No, I did not go to the monkeys. I went to the gorge, but I didn't go to the monkeys. Mm. Why are there monkeys? Um, look, I don't know why there are monkeys there, but they are adorable and complicated. Okay, okay. Yeah. Look, They're just hanging out in the middle of Launceston? There's a park called City Park in Launceston. I, I will chime in here and say I am also in love with the monkeys. Mm. I was there when there were a few baby monkeys oh. and there was one particularly cheeky little cheeky little boy who was just swinging and playing and we just went and visited him every single day when we were there for Monophoma last year. I can't believe I missed this monkey situation. Very cute, but I, um, I think it has something to do with an exchange with Japan. Yes. Um, I don't know when it was. I'm pretty sure it was like through the early 20th century or something like that, where Launceston and Japan had an exchange. And I think that um, Japan maybe gave Launceston the monkeys and Launceston gave Japan some wallabies. Oh, great. Very exchange. Mm. They've definitely been there for a long time. Um, and it sort of is one of those strange cultural artifacts that doesn't quite make sense anymore, um, but can still be enjoyed and discussed. <laughs> <laughs> and Lara, who did you choose uh, while you were down there? Who did you choose to interview? I got to chat with another provoque, Lucy Bleach, who's a Tasmanian artist. Um, you might be familiar with her work. She makes these huge um, ice sculptures out of local water. Um, but the work that we talked about was this wonderful piece she made called Homing. And um, keep your ears out, there's actually a moment in the work starring a David Lynch Mulholland Drive star all the way from LA to a laneway in Launceston. Um, and she also told me about one of her favorite works from the Japanese uh, art islands. Do you know about these islands? 
I went into you went. yeah, I went in 2015, made the trek there. It is one of the highlights of my life. Absolutely Dang. incredible. Really, really cool. Yeah, well, listen up because um, this particular work's very fascinating. Great, can't wait to listen. Thanks, Lara. Hi, Lucy. Thanks so much for speaking with me for AFID's Listens. I am excited to actually talk about a work that has sort of all these different layers and is very site responsive, um, your work called Homing. Mm-hmm. And what I know of it, which is quite minimal, is that it uh, it has a real kind of engaged uh, process uh, but links up quite different objects and art forms and people into this one very particular site. So, um, yeah, during AFID's Listens, we really want to go deep into a single work and it would be great to sort of start from um, how this sort of opportunity came about where you um, very began at the very seed of the idea and sort of include some of the challenges or processes, not with just the concept, but perhaps the other things that it took to get the work up. Mm, yeah. Um, I mean, thank you for asking me to talk about this work because it is 10 years now since I made it. So, you know, it's a while ago and um, practice uh, moves on. So it's it's love. I really enjoyed making this work. Mm. Uh, it was a it was such a great opportunity uh, to make something that was actually quite complex and um, for me as a local to engage with parts of Hobart that I hadn't before. So the premise of the work for iteration again was that every artist would create a site specific work um, that would every Saturday have an iteration. So the distinction between not just a repeat, that it it went through a process where it was intrinsically linked to its previous iteration, but it grew, Mm, it changed, it shifted. Mm. Yeah. So that was a nice thing to think about. What felt um, I kept coming up with was this notion of um, belonging in a city and finding spaces to belong in and how we may inhabit places that are unintentional, I think, Mm. yeah, so they're not, they're, you know, for for a sense of having a home if perhaps you're in transition Mm. or longing or a range of things which are in some way unattainable or you're in a process of transition. Mm. Anyway, and I feel like the city can hold that. And it actually does hold that. Yeah. Um, but possibly it's not always seen to hold that. A city. And so I had some motifs that I was working with. Um, one of them were the steps that um, may go into a building, could, which could be a private building or a public building, you know, in reference to the tenement um, apartments. There would always be the stoop that would be occupied, especially in times of the Depression and... I had all these images of America and those communities that would congregate and seeing them in Sydney when I come from Sydney and then Hobart, you know, so they're sites that are occupied um, and they're beautiful transitional spaces between public and private Mm. realms. And architecturally, they're just really satisfying. Mm. (laughs) We don't have that stoop culture (laughs) that you see in the States where it's often used as a site 
of coming together to sit on the steps. Definitely large, large steps, um, like town halls and things. Yes. But yeah, that's really interesting. Mm. I haven't thought about steps like that in some time. Mm. Yeah, and we there are a couple in Hobart that do get occupied, and they're yeah they're noticeable for that. Uh, yeah, so there was that, and um, then also uh, just the pigeon as a, um, as a motif as well of something that occupies our public spaces and is a nuisance for some people, um, but is also incredibly endearing and tenacious and um, migratory and a whole lot of things. And um, they're also homing pigeons, and so I was um, very interested in that. Mm. As something to explore. And did you get to pick the site or was there a sort of site that was recommended that you use by the curator? Completely open slather. Mm. And, you know, I the work ended up being complex enough, but it was going to be so much more complex. There was going to be like four sites. And <laughs> <laughs> David was going, mm, David has these great sayings like, mm, you know, just don't over-egg the pudding or... <laughs> seems like you may be having four projects here. We could probably narrow it down. <laughs> Don't go for the buffet breakfast when you can have bacon and eggs. Yeah. 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 So the, he always had very sage advice. Uh, so I did um, uh, focus on one site then, which is a site that I kept coming back to, which is just a inconsequential laneway in Hobart, Hobart CBD, which constitutes maybe three blocks. So it's a small, it's a small country town, and it, but the the texture of this laneway is reminiscent of something like West Side Story. It's got it's got a slight cinematic feel to it, but a very low scale one. And um, at the time of this project, it was inconsequential. Since since now it's been redesigned, and there's a lot of. Um, designed public artwork around it and laneway culture yes we're familiar with that in melbourne <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's pop got up a... a mural put in some cafe chairs see what happens yeah it's yeah. got a taste of that okay yeah so at this time it was not that and it's interesting in that it connects um several other sort of laneways or spaces which doesn't really happen so much in hobart mm. and also as it happens, um, there are quite a few charity organisations that have clustered and at that time were clustered around that laneway. So Save the Children Fund and Catholic Women's League and Women's Shelter and the 50 and Better Centre. Anyway, <laughs> all these, you know, caring places. Mm. And that was part of the first iteration. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So um, the first iteration was things would happen at pretty much six o'clock in the morning, dawn in the morning for each iteration. So the first iteration was a high-ab truck backing into this laneway and uh, depositing a, a mini stoop. So I had this beautiful, like, mini set of concrete stairs made. So that was placed in the middle of the laneway and then, you know, kind of a balletic orchestration of this. And then the truck left and then another truck followed with a St Vincent de Paul clothing bin empty. Uh, which it then lowered onto the top of the steps. Mm. So, oh, and I should mention, before any of that happened, a neon sign of a pigeon was erected in the laneway. Mm, at sort of the height, at height, at flying height. Yes, that's right, <laughs> taking off. Yes, exactly. <laughs> was it difficult to sort of logistically get a bin and a, a big concrete set of stairs in that narrow space? I mean, the people that drive these trucks are extraordinary. <laughs> yeah. 
if I was doing it, it would be a nightmare. Disaster. Yeah. No, they are extraordinary. And yes, uh, no, they just, you know, it is a ballet. They're just like whoosh, 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 plonk. Mm, And I think it, it was just to see the photo was very interesting because you could really walk past and not notice it, but because it's a really familiar object. But then the fact that this bin was on this mini stage was quite weird and like you'd walk up Mm. to make an offer and did you expect people to donate things was that always something you were sure you were sure was it would happen oh never sure yeah um uh hopeful yeah and because there's no instruction so that you know the chances were that maybe no one would but also because of the nature of the laneway, it's it's not exposed in that you don't feel like you're standing out. So if, and because it was there for a week, and because the Save the Children uh, secondhand clothing shop was next door, there may just be sort of peripheral connection to the, oh, the mm. St Vincent de Paul mm. put a new bin here. Mm. And there was there wasn't signage saying <laughs> no, this is an artwork. Nothing. No, great. And great. of course, David would have been all over. None of that would happen. Yes. So incongruity is really fantastic Mm. so when things are familiar but out of place they Mm. don't make sense Mm. there's a smudge in the logic Mm. I love that a smudge in the logic (laughs) and so a week later you opened it up yes and there were so many clothes it's kind of (laughs) too many clothes actually ultimately at the end of the project I had to put the some of the clothes back into another bin yeah it was amazing and so yeah six o'clock in the morning took Opened, so you know, to actually to actually have the key to open a bin was pretty exciting. <laughs> Open the bin, bags of bags full of set clothes, and then um, the high up truck, truck came and took the bin away. So then what was left was the set of stairs and the sign and these bags of clothes. And so the corner shop of the laneway is the Save the Children um, secondhand clothes for kids shop. And so I had um, discussed with them and um, they were very happy to let us set up sewing tables in the front windows, which were lovely, just a corner window, which looked out onto the set of steps. And so we set up our sewing machines and worked with uh, Roz Wren, who's a costume designer in Hobart. She works on a lot of theatre productions. She's really fantastic. And so initially... Uh, just kind of talked to her that I really wanted to have a cloak made but that it would be in increments so that you might start with the hood and then the next day it might be, anyway, we can talk about that, but Mm. it would incrementally grow. And then all the clothes, Roz, in discussion with her, she's going, let's go with a chakra so that, you know, the head is the head chakra and Mm. all the different panels. So we were sorting out the clothes for the colours of the chakra And then as part of this iteration, for a couple of months before the project, I had been visiting uh, women who belong to the Stitch Group, which is run through a charity, actually the Catholic Church, for women who have recently settled in Tasmania from uh, African countries, so Sudan and Somalia, Eritrea, Ethiopia, and uh, they meet every week. And it's obviously an opportunity for people to connect learn English language skills and it centres around sewing and eating Mm, mm. and so you know to be able to come and talk and share food and conversation and start to talk about this project which you know is pretty curious so the premise being that 
they could contribute their sewing skills and many of them had beautiful embroidery skills and did use that on the cloak. They would come in to um, the shop and come and sit at the tables with Ros and myself and work on this cloak together. Mm. So it was really significant that uh, these women firstly felt that they wanted to and they could see it was something that they could contribute housed within an organisation that was all about looking after children that were still needing support, mm. possibly in countries that they've come from. Mm. But none of it overstated. And um, again, it was incongruous, people coming into the shop to buy secondhand clothes, but there's just this lovely activity. It was never And they're mentioned. sitting in the window, yeah. so it's, it's kind of a durational performance without feeling performative. Yeah. At no point was it mentioned that it was an artwork. Yeah. We were working, we were making this cloak. Yeah. Yeah, and that. how long did that cloak take? A week. A week. Nice. Yeah. And were the women making the work um, asking more about the piece itself or were they quite sort of happy to just go about the task? Like what was their kind of understanding of the piece? Yeah, so um, they understood what was going to happen, mm. that a performer would actually wear the piece and um, they felt that, it, you know, it was a special thing. And it was kind of funny mm. and mm, kind of illogical but funny and something, out, it was out of the ordinary that they felt that they were contributing to. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's really uh, pretty interesting who you invited <laughs> to perform. Can you talk us through that? How, how did that happen? Yeah. So then, you know, so this cloak was being made for a performer. So I was really clear with this laneway that you know so uh, attached to the desire to belong you know longing there you know there's a real sadness and I and again the city can hold that sadness and needs to hold mm. that sadness and that the the laneway can be a throat for that and so I just felt that um, we need some really powerful laments and uh, I just kept coming back to <laughs> the um, beautiful scene in um, Club Silencio in um, Mulholland Drive where Rebecca Del Rio is singing, crying in Spanish uh, because it's uh, so amazing um, and so poignant and powerful and then she collapses at the end and it's so glamorous and, you know, it's, and it's heightened it's very theatrical. Que te quiero aún más, mucho más que ayer. Dime tú qué puedo hacer. No me quieres ya. Y siempre estaré. And because I'd been thinking of this combination of this very understated context but these strange things going on uh, that were accumulating, it felt right to try and get someone like that. So anyway, I just thought, oh, I'll just try and get in touch with her. So I found, uh, I think I found her website and just, con you know how sometimes you can contact people via their website. Just thought, oh, I'll give it a shot. She got back and because I told her about the Stitch Women and that they were making the cloak and... Um, and, she, and I said, look, um, I, can get, I can fly you over with my artist fee. We can give you a small fee and we'll, we'll put you up while you're here and you can be here for a week. And to come and sing uh, that song and then a, another song of your choice that's equally a lament 
in the laneway every day at different times of the day. And she just got back and said, I'm so into this. <laughs> <laughs> I could not believe it. It's just like such an amazing <laughs> lesson in like, believe if you believe that something is too impossible, just maybe give it a little go. <laughs> yeah. Just fly someone from Mulholland Drive into a tiny laneway in Hobart. <laughs> for a week to do some singing from LA like just love it yeah and she's so LA and it just says so much about her that she was just like oh yeah I really want to do this totally and when I picked her up from the airport she went she just looked at me she went okay you're everything you're my driver you're my carer you're the artist (laughs) she went cool (laughs) Anyway, and she's so slightly fabulous. different to a film set, just yeah. slightly. <laughs> she had said, "There's no writer, is there?" <laughs> no, I didn't know what a writer was. <laughs> anyway, so amazingly, she came, and so yeah, at dawn on the next iteration of the Saturday, so the cloaks made, um, the sewing tables are taken out, the shop returns to the shop, and at, at dawn, Rebecca appears with just the hood and her normal clothes. So. Again, it was just her normal clothes and this hood. And then she climbs up onto the steps and sings that song. And then another lament. And then walks away. And this would happen every day. And each day with her singing, the cloak would be growing. Um, but it, you, the people would just walk past. So there's no explanation for it. And sometimes there was a, um, you know, the fire steps that are on, like it's those buildings that, that cities have and it's also very New York as well mm. so she'd climb up the fire steps sometime mm. and sing out to the skyline and kind of played around a little bit yeah and it was very moving actually and um yeah was that voice yeah incredible yeah and was she sort of ever perplexed or I don't know you know it's like not even busking it's you know, mm. the, the, the audience is mm. not uh, necessarily focusing on this incredibly <laughs> talented mm. person. Mm. How, how did she take that? Oh, she loved it. Yeah. She loved Humble. it. Humble, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, some people would gather. And yeah. People, and even though we were doing it different times of the day, you know, word got out, oh, I think she's doing it this time. And so some people would come and gather. And there were people who would come every day. But, no, no, she loved the, un- the uncanny nature of it that, People would just walk past and walk, walk past looking at her going, what is going on? What a special collaboration. Mm, so great. And then she just disappeared on a flight back to LA. Yeah. <laughs> After that iteration, she was gone. And she's got the cloak. Nice. Yeah. Beautiful. She's got the cloak. So the final iteration, the high-up truck comes again, takes her steps out, dawn. And then a little bit later, I think around 9 o'clock, Oh, I haven't even talked about this, sorry. No, go. So the final, so also part of this project, so now bringing in the pigeons. For a couple of months, I guess, I can't even remember, but prior to the project I joined, I'm an affiliated, although I think I'm lapsed now, but I became, I'm, I was an affiliated member of the Moona Homing Pigeon Association. So Moona is a northern suburb of Hobart. And um, I joined the Pigeon Club. They were 
they were very welcoming, they were curious, and to understand the fanciers. So that's what they're called, homing, homing pigeon people of fanciers. And um, I talked to them that um, I was interested in involving them in the project. So that that meant going, so going to their meetings, which were pretty, you know, I didn't have a lot to contribute, but it was great to listen in their clubhouse, which was at the Royal Showgrounds. And then with some of the members being invited back to their homes and to the lofts where their pigeons were, and to take in all the artefacts of that culture, really. What happens at a homing pigeon fanciers meeting? Well, there's a a lot to discuss in terms of the races. So they race, upcoming races, past races, issues that may be happening between clubs, interstate rivalry, but also things like eagles. So eagles are a real problem because they take the pigeons. So there's not a lot of respect for the eagles in the conversations. Fair. Yeah. Fair. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, other stuff. Were you was what was the kind of typical fancier? Oh, so they're um they're all men. All men. And they range in age. They were all older than me and some closer in age to others, some very old. Yeah. And they've been doing it for decades and decades. And quite a few father sons in there. Oh, wow. Mm. And so father and sons flying their pigeons. Some of the races are across Bass Strait and, yeah, they're, very, they're so connected and it is very tender. Mm. It's, yeah, amazing. And then some of them would also take me out on just mini liberations, which is what the release is called. And so we'd drive maybe, I don't know, an hour out of Hobart and then set the pigeons off and then drive back in and, well, of course the pigeons were home a long time before us. Yeah, so... You know, it was pretty fascinating and they were very welcoming. Mm. And then so I started talking about the project and would it be okay to uh, work with the pigeons in the final iteration? Actually, the neon sign, I mentioned this the other day, the neon sign of the pigeon was made at Claude Neon and he, he was the brother to the father and son who flew the pigeons. <laughs> so it's a All cla- connected. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so the final iteration was bringing the mobile pigeon liberation unit, uh, which is a trailer with all the pigeons in, you know, um, it's beautifully made, into the laneway. And then I can't remember, I think it was at, so it marked the end of the whole project, iteration again. I think it was at four o'clock. Oh, I didn't mention this the other day. So I had contact mics on the trailer in different places. And then I had speakers up like where the, the staircase, the fire staircase where Rebecca had sung sometimes, speakers up there. So the cooing of the pigeons could be heard throughout the day Amazing. up in the air. And then at four o'clock, and we did let people know that there would be the liberation and the end of iteration again, people gathered, and then David and I released the pigeons. Beautiful. Yeah, and then that was it. I love the language in those crops, like liberation and fancier. It's so, um, it feels exotic and thrilling and, yeah, I, I can't even cross my mind that these clubs existed. Mm, mm. And, yeah, how did they feel about being part of a artwork? Yeah, they were pretty curious, but they were open. Mm. Yeah, 
They're open. They, I mean, you know, some people in the club really didn't pay much attention and there were ultimately a handful of people who I did really engage with. Mm. I think they thought it was it was fun. Yeah. And, and nice to be involved in something very different. Yeah. And it led to other projects where I actually... I, um, I got a sp- little spy camera, which is like a USB camera off the internet and made a harness. So I googled how to make a, you know, camera... And you use brass straps and it's like a little harness for the camera. And so I, I then worked with the club again and also a fancier up in Devonport for another project and captured their flight back home. Oh, wow. Really beautiful. So you made pigeon harnesses? Yeah. Amazing. Have brass straps. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess with that project, was there anything that felt particularly challenging or any responses that you didn't expect from participants or audience or yeah is there any sort of reflections on the project as a whole oh there is one thing and actually I didn't mention this so part of the final iteration again was I was taking photographs of all the lofts and the trophies and all of those I mean amazing things and then I was and they were just like printed black and white photocopies and I was pasting them up on the laneway and I just wish, when I look at photographs now, I was so pooped by the end. Mm. But that's not enough reason not to ful- fulfil a work. It, if I was that pooped, then I should have then called in other people to help. Um, I I think it would have been beautiful for the whole laneway to be pasted. Mm. So that, so it would match the conviction of everything else. That That is the thing that I go, mm, that would have been uh, That would have really been sweet. elevated it. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. everything was sort of so large scale in a sense mm. and I see what yeah fulsome yes yeah but that's a minor thing and I may be the only one oh there might be a couple other people go you could have done that bit a bit more. <laughs> yeah. you could the have finished that up could have been a bit larger <laughs> come on Lucy <laughs> where's your conviction <laughs> um yeah really fascinating project and really I think exciting curatorial proposition to shift a work considerably each week like quite a large ask I think in terms of the labor expected of an artist but um to see a site shift like that would have been really interesting as a audience I think and then I just love how you engaged very different I guess community groups if you want to call them that or um, clubs or mm. <laughs> groups to be part of the work in a way that was very comfortable to them so it wasn't expecting them to necessarily do anything different or performative but it felt like they were given sort of a well the pigeon fancies were given a literal platform you know <laughs> to put their their interest into a, a new context and yeah I think that's very um, delicate way of involving um, participation and, and I guess social engagement, which is really nice to, to hear more about. We're at the point now where we hear about any work in the whole world, <laughs> local, far away, um, old, new, 
that um, someone else has made that you could talk us through that you really like? Mm. It's um, it's such a nice question, and it's it's actually hard to choose one to talk about. But totally. I have, I have, <laughs> I've got one, and it's uh, the Teshima Art Museum in Japan. So on the in the um, Seto Inland Sea, the Satuchi Sea, those islands, the, the art islands. So there's Naoshima, which has the key, you know, art museum. But then on Teshima, which is a smaller island. There's the most extraordinary artwork, which is made by a female Japanese artist whose name is Rei Nato. And uh, she's then worked with an architect, um, Ryui Nishigasawa, who amazingly has created a space for her work. And so the space is, I don't know if you know this work, the space is you go, so you go to this all this thing about how you get there and all of this beautiful journey to these islands, and it's it's the only art thing on the island, and the the museum's dedicated to her work, and so the structure is concrete, kind of white concrete, and it's um, the shape of a water droplet, mm. but it's like I don't know fifty meters across or something, forty oh. forty. Uh, I'm a bit bad with dimensions. It's big-ish, but then also intimate. Anyway, it's this kind of squashed orb shape in the landscape. And when you go in, there are two elliptical holes in the ceiling, um, apertures. They're different sizes. And then that in itself is beautiful. That's the architecture. So there's a beautiful porosity between inside, outside, light, air, you know, environment. The space is all concrete, so it's, you know, an extraordinary kind of organic, brutalist structure. But across the concrete floor are these tiny little holes which water droplets emerge from. Just they well, they well up like tears. And then because of, I think because of the way the floor is, it's, it's a very subtle got a very, very mini topography, but also because of where the apertures are, it has an air current in it. And it moves these water droplets across the floor. What? It is. And it's it's mind-blowing because you think, have they got someone under there with a magnet or something <laughs> that are moving? They're, it is like, I don't know if you know Miyazaki animation, Mm, a little. So it's it's just completely um, magic. These water droplets that then bump into another to make a bigger one, and then bump into another, and then some of them are quite big, and then they dissipate and eventually evaporate, and they're all moving Whoa. around the floor. And then there are also these strips of I don't know if they're they're like a, a organza, which in some places, and so they're just moving with the air current as well. It's mesmerising. And quite large scale, it sounds. It's huge. But, but it's, it's such a quiet work mm. and enthralling. Mm. And, you know, everyone who comes in, they're just so deeply respectful. Mm. Everyone goes into this very quiet but also playful space. Yeah. You know, kids are running around trying to get the... Droplets. <laughs> yeah. 
it's really beautiful. How long ago did you witness it? Mm, so I went, I was uh, in Kyoto at the beginning of 2020 and mm, I was doing... Lucky. Oh, I know, <laughs> so lucky. So I had a self, I just did a self-funded residency there and as part of that I had always wanted to get out to Naoshima and Teshima and yeah so that's when I went and yeah I got back just before COVID wow. like I cut my trip short a little bit mm. and is it a permanent work yeah so it really has to sort of withstand the weather yeah. and the elements and yeah but um and as I you know I've read, I've read um interviews with the artists and you know she talks about it's beautiful you know rain comes in snow comes in the weather comes in I mean I'm I also would oh the the space is immaculate so it would be cleaned probably Careful. twice a day <laughs> yes beginning yes. into the day it would be impeccably cleaned because it's spotless wow mm. Mm, I've definitely heard of this experience um, but that work in particular sounds quite mesmerizing how long did you spend with the work pretty much the whole day wow yeah so and, and it shifted over time yeah because yeah. the light's moving mm. and you know other artists work with that kind of shifting light like Terrell and certainly Terrell's on Naoshima mm. um, yeah but it was it's an incredible collaboration between the architect and the artist I don't think that happens that often mm. um, you know it's pretty special yeah, and I, I, I guess like a proper resources to make something that feels really present and f and firm and long, uh, with like, with stay for a while. Mm. It's sort of quite rare to have those works that have so many layers within them. Um, yeah, and obviously really cared for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, three, yeah. Lucky. Lucky. <laughs> if only, if only we had someone cleaning our art twice a day. Well, that's been a really lovely conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Lara. Aphids, listen. listen. listen.